For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, part two of an investigation into the international success of BASIS schools. And I'll talk with author Erica Westley about Fast Pitch, the untold history of softball, and the women who made the game. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last week, we heard how BASIS went from a single charter school in Tucson to an international network. Arizona Daily Star investigative reporter Yu Yan Zhang spent months looking into the school system, how it works, and how it's funded. This week, she reports on challenges some families face getting access to a BASIS education and the rigor behind its glowing reputation. On an April morning, Onita Perkel drove all the way from her Scottsdale home to the Arizona State Capitol in downtown Phoenix. The mother of two had something she wanted to say to state lawmakers. I'm here because I was hoping to have my story heard. Her story is actually about her daughter Bree and how school choice and its promises for success let her down. Bree has ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and dyslexia. She struggled a lot in two different basis schools. Her mother spent months fighting with her schools to get her help. It didn't come soon enough, though, her mother says, and the experience left Bree feeling worthless. In its race to the top, BASIS left behind a trail of students who felt shortchanged by the network. They include students who are most costly to educate, including those with disabilities, those who are learning English as a second language, or who are from low-income backgrounds. BASIS, as a public charter school, must serve all students who come through its doors. But parents and educators have continually criticized BASIS for what they call cherry-picking or weeding out of students. Eileen Sigmund, the executive director of Arizona Charter Schools Association, says those claims are not true. You're assuming there is an issue. Um, instead of looking at the facts and the data, um, BASIS is opened in South Phoenix to make sure that, and actively recruited to make sure students in our South Phoenix community accessed an excellent education. So here are the facts as we know it. The numbers are from the 2014 to 2015 school year, which is the most recent public data available. Things could have very much changed since then, and BASIS says they have, but there are no more recent numbers available yet. So we'll update when National Center for Education Statistics releases new data. The available data shows the average enrollment for students with disabilities was less than 2% across BASIS Arizona schools. The national average that year was 13%. And although data shows there were just six English language learners in BASIS Arizona charter schools that year, BASIS says there were actually 28. That's about 0.3%, which is still much lower than the national average of 9.4%. But BASIS CEO Peter Bazanson says that number has been improving in recent years. A network-wide effort to open more elementary schools has helped and there's been more outreach to Spanish-speaking families. Most BASIS charter schools don't offer subsidized lunch or transportation. 
Its Washington, D.C. and South Phoenix campuses are the only ones that participate in free or reduced lunch. Of 551 students at the D.C. campus, 17% were eligible for free or reduced price lunches, when more than half of public school students in the U.S. were eligible. Besanson says BASIS does not turn away students. Anybody can apply. There's, we broadcast open enrollment windows. We have massive numbers of applications and wait lists every year. The BASIS network has faced especially sharp criticism in regards to its special education. The U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights opened an investigation on BASIS special education practices after a teacher filed a complaint in 2014. The teacher wrote in the complaint that she and others were told BASIS would not modify its curriculum for students with disabilities. She was also told that students are failed or retained if they are unable to master their curriculum without modifications. Besanson says that's not true. BASIS does modify the curriculum, but ultimately, the goal is to help every student, with or without a disability, reach BASIS rigorous requirements. So in other words, we might increase the amount of time or, or do something different with math curriculum in the middle school to better prepare them for calculus in the high school. BASIS volunteered to a resolution agreement in lieu of a full investigation, which isn't to say they're assuming guilt. An education department spokesman says the case is still being monitored. This is my journal. It says believe. It's got stars on it. I got a page that 11-year-old Brie Perkel is energetic and bouncy. On top of ADHD and dyslexia, Brie has severe anxiety attacks. Those conditions make it difficult for her to keep on task. Sometimes she had trouble just sitting still, and her mother says Brie would often get scolded for that in school. Brie used to have a 504 plan, which grants certain modifications for students with disabilities under a federal law. That was when Brie went to Basis Phoenix Central. For fourth grade, she moved to Basis Scottsdale Primary, a newer school that's closer to home. Her mother liked the head of school there, but that person quit not long after. And then it was more of the same. She says she'd ask for curriculum or homework modifications, and more often than not, get rejected. We had some issues there, them just not addressing with her. You know, they would say, we would sit down and say, oh, well, we're going to get a checklist for her so that she won't forget, you know, or, and then there would be no follow-up. And then I would go to the SPED coordinator and I'd say, where's the follow-up? Oh, I don't, let me get back to you. And it was just this, this went on for an entire year. Finally, Perkel decided to pursue an individual education program for Brie. The IEP, as it's commonly known, is a more comprehensive blueprint for a child's special education under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. She did that in December 2015. And so began a grueling and sometimes hostile process to get on the same page with the school, Perkel says. An initial plan must be in place within 60 days of the first IEP meeting. Nothing was signed until May 12th of 2016. In the meantime, Brie continued to struggle. I never got time for fun. I was always doing homework. I would come home and cry. I just didn't have fun there. I never gave, I never gave room to fun because I was just really stressed out because I get a lot of anxiety and I, and I have panic attacks and I, and I just start crying nonstop and it's really hard. 
Raquel ended up filing a complaint with the Arizona Department of Education, which investigated the case and found the school did not provide a proper initial placement statement. And as a result, Basis was ordered to pay for compensatory services, and the school's special education coordinator was required to attend a dispute resolution course. I think where I got to was I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't spend this much time emailing teachers on two fronts, two different schools, and hoping for a different outcome. Because ultimately, every time I sat down in a meeting, it was the same thing. It was, we just want the child to be accountable. Perkel says she's not done fighting, though. She's determined not to have any other child go through what her daughter went through. That's why she showed up to the state capitol that April morning. She didn't stay long enough for her story to be read by State Representative Rebecca Rios. She had to go pick up Brie from school. But her friend had stayed behind and recorded videos. And it has to stop one way or another. Raquel is sitting in front of a computer in her living room as moving pictures of our state legislators flash by. Some are rolling their eyes, others are walking out. But this is ridiculous. That's what it's like to get your voice heard. Stay tuned for more of this story right after this break. Welcome back to the show. Here's more of Yu Yun Jung's report on basis schools. Peter Bazanson, the basis CEO, says the network's philosophy is that any child willing to work hard can succeed at a higher level. The number one part of the, the secret sauce for basis is to have high expectations for kids and then not to lower the bar but to say, like, you can do it. Some of those high expectations include advanced placement courses and exams. Those allow high school students to get entry-level college credit in advance. 
In order to graduate, Basis High School students are required to take at least eight AP college-level courses and six AP exams. But few students settle for the minimum. In 2016, Basis students graduated with an average of 11.5 AP exams. Some graduates take as many as 20, compared with a national average of about 1.8 among students who take AP. Not all do. And they begin taking AP courses as early as 8th grade, although the college board, which administers those, says juniors and seniors are best positioned to take them. It's also quite rigorous to move on to the next grade. Students in grades 1 through 5 must earn 60% or higher in their final grades for every subject to be promoted. Starting in 6th grade, students have to pass comprehensive exams for all subjects. But droves of research say grade retention has no real benefit, academic or otherwise. The National Association of School Psychologists says schools should seek alternatives to help address specific instructional needs of students who struggle. With the way the basis curriculum is set up, though, Bazanson says it makes no sense for a kid to move on to the next grade without having mastered the content of the previous grade. I mean, that's just, that's inhumane. I mean, it's setting the kid up for failure or it's setting the school up to be, uh, to be a joke. He also says there are opportunities to make up failed comprehensive exams. And few kids are actually retained, though there may be parents who pull their kids out mid-year to avoid failing. Bazanson says basis education is truly transformative. At least it was for his own daughter, who he says used to have lower than average interest in academics. That kid has been transformed in just one month of basis fifth grade. This is her first year here. She's now the sort of kid that when we drive, or if we drive somewhere, she wants to bring her math book. And she's doing it out of a real interest in doing well. He says that's because basis teaches children to love learning. Brad Michelson's daughter, Kate, has found that to be true. She's a really kind of kind-hearted, um, determined, hardworking kid. Tried the athletic thing. That really wasn't her favorite thing to do, although she's, you know, she's active and everything else, but she's not an athlete at this point in time. She's more of a student, and uh, she really enjoys the school. She loves the school. She likes the challenge, her father says, and her desire to learn is supported by teachers who are experts in their fields. Michelson says he and his wife have made the commitment to support their daughter as much as they can in her academic endeavor. Thankfully, he says Kate is very self-motivated. She makes her own decisions about what classes to take and does just fine navigating on her own. It also helps that Michelson works from home and he and his wife take shifts so that someone is almost always there for her. I can't speak to parents who work 80 hours a week with three kids. I don't know how they go to high school. <laughs> I can't necessarily square that circle for you. People can choose to come to us because of who we are. That's the basis CEO, Peter Bazanson again. When people choose to leave us to go somewhere else, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, we want to keep as many kids as we can, but the key to the school choice movement is choice. And a student leaving us to go to another school has exercised their choice. Julie Earthley's older son had a great experience at Basis Phoenix. He had tested into a gifted program at his previous school and enjoyed the rigor at Basis. She says it's great to have a specialized school for gifted children. Her older son was one of them until he decided he wanted a more traditional high school experience, 
with prom and football and things like that. But would it have worked for her younger son who has a learning disability and dyslexia? She says no, it wouldn't have. She didn't feel that basis schools were a place that an average kid could get enough help to succeed, much less one with disabilities. Where I get upset is when our lawmakers, especially our legislators and our governor, choose to look at BASIS as a model for all schools. It is not. It is not representative of the general population. Natalie Lakaitis, a spokeswoman for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, says in states where charter schools aren't even allowed, parents may face situations where the only neighborhood school is not right for them, but they couldn't afford to go to a private school. She says the fact that families can decide they don't want to go to basis for whatever reason is an example of how school choice has progressed. As her daughter Bree plays the piano, Onita Perkel wonders if more choice is necessarily better because she knows behind the apparent success of basis, there are kids like Bree who felt pushed out of the glory of it all. Some parents think it's the best thing to happen to education, I think it's the worst thing to happen to education. I, I see the dismantling of transparency and accountability and equality for all students. Arizona Public Media, the Arizona Daily Star, and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, I'm Yuhyun Jung. Softball was invented in the 1800s as an indoor game played with a broomstick and a balled-up boxing glove. In the sport's nearly 130-year history, it has been, at various points, an Olympic sport and a traveling vaudeville act, and has been called many names, mushball, lightning ball, kitten ball. But above all, it was inclusive not just of women, but of people of all different shapes and sizes and from all different walks of life. It was an everyman's game that also appealed to outsiders and amassed tens of millions of fans around the world without ever becoming mainstream. Tucson resident Erica Westley didn't know much about softball when she started researching her book, Fast Pitch, The Untold History of Softball and the Women Who Made the Game. But she discovered a number of surprising stories about how this often female-driven sport became a popular American pastime. Players like Bertha Tickey and Joan Joyce may not have appeared on Wheaties boxes, in fact no softball player has, but they each had the kind of long, winning career that any athlete can respect.
The pitching, especially historically, was really dominant, partly just because the pitcher is closer to the batter, so the reaction time is less, and they don't get fatigued as easily either because the games are shorter and the underhand pitching is kind of a more natural motion. So the fast pitch pitchers can be super dominant. I think a lot of times it just comes down to psychological factors and things like that that can throw the pitcher off his or her game. What are a couple of the primary factors that have allowed women to shine in the sport of fast pitch softball? Well, I think the biggest thing was just that they had a chance to really play it competitively, the same rules as the men were playing from an early stage. And they didn't have that chance in a lot of other sports, including basketball, which was pretty watered down in most of the country starting you know, around the same time in the 1930s or so. And softball, it kind of all these really competitive female athletes got funneled into fast pitch softball because there were so few opportunities elsewhere. So it just became kind of the sport for really competitive female athletes early in the 20th century. When was the heyday of fast pitch? During the 1940s, 50s, and then going into the 60s. But by the late 60s, most of the men had dropped out of the sport and Women were still playing it, but there weren't as many companies and local groups sponsoring these really competitive teams that had existed in the 40s and 50s. You also make an interesting point in your book that equal rights for women and what was called at that time the women's lib movement in the 60s and 70s didn't really help the sport that much. It was kind of an interesting dichotomy there. Women who were into sports weren't necessarily supporters of the feminist movement, and people in the feminist movement weren't necessarily supporters of sports. So they weren't necessarily working together and overlapping that much. A lot of the women who were on these softball teams came from working class backgrounds. They weren't necessarily attending college like many of the women on on the feminist side were. So, I mean, there was some overlap in that Billie Jean King was a very prominent feminist, and she helped sponsor this professional softball league starting in the mid-70s. You talk about a lot of the standout players of the game. Um, A woman named Joan Joyce had a remarkable career in that sport and many others. But pretty much the central character that emerges in your book, though, is Bertha Reagan Tickey. If you were going to tell someone over coffee who Bertha was, where would you start? What would you say about her? I think I would start with saying that she grew up on a farm in the Depression era in Central California, playing baseball with her six brothers, and then switched to softball. And before she was even out of high school, was playing for this glamorous Los Angeles area softball team. She stayed with them and played with them until World War II and then came back after the war. And then eventually, by the 1950s, was recruited to play softball for a company-sponsored team in Connecticut. They paid for her to fly and move all the way across the country with her 13-year-old daughter, and she continued to pitch for that team and win national titles with them until she was in her late 40s. So she had one of the longest semi-professional athletic careers for a woman at at that time. What was Bertha's strength as a fast-pitch player? Well, she had really worked on her pitching techniques over the years, so she... She knew exactly where she wanted the ball to go. And her biggest trick was really psychological, where she could kind of psych out the batters. They knew her reputation by a certain point. And she studied them relentlessly and had (laughs) fantastic memories. So she had notes on all of their batting styles and knew what would trip them up. And she had hundreds of no-hitters, hundreds of strikeouts, and her record was just incredible. 
She could throw rise balls and drop balls. Both can be tricky to hit. But her delivery was unusual. She used a delivery called the figure eight that started behind the back and then sort of wrapped around kind of in a swirling motion with a flick of the wrist. So it wasn't a superpower delivery. She didn't throw particularly hard or fast, but it was enough to to make batters strike out right and left. Yeah, you have a quote in your book where she says it gave the ball a little hop, and when they went to swing at it, it wasn't there. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that was great. Tell us about some historic times when women's fast-pitch players ended up meeting Major League Baseball players on the field. Yeah, the main one that comes to mind is Joan Joyce, who Joan was sort of Bertha's successor at the Breakettes. She was about 20 years younger. And and the team, let's go back and say the name of the team because we haven't said it yet. Right, the Ray Bestos Breakettes. But where did that name come from? Um, well, they were named after Ray Bestos made car brake linings. There's sort of this history of softball pitchers pitching against baseball players. So Joan Joyce struck out Ted Williams in the early 1960s at a charity event in Connecticut. And, you know, it was for fun, but these baseball players like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, they were still very seriously trying to get a hit. So it wasn't for show or anything like that. But um, really it's just, you know, the differences, if you haven't played fast pitch and faced a, a strong pitcher, then it's just not, it's different enough that you wouldn't be used to it. And it takes an skill and training to be able to to get a hit off a pitcher like that. The recount of the uh, story of when Joan Joyce pitched to Ted Williams and struck him out is a highlight of the book, and it was obviously a highlight of Joan Joyce's life. Yeah, well, especially in New England, Ted Williams is a legend, and so to strike him out, um, I think it really made her kind of a local celebrity. I mean, she already was, in a way, a local celebrity just for her pitching for the breakouts, but it helped solidify her as, as a local sports figure. And she was only in her early 20s, you know, still in college when she went up against Ted Williams. So she was still starting out in her athletic career at the time. And in recent years, um, Jenny Finch, who's going to be very well known to most of our listeners, she has done the same thing. Yeah, she um, also went up against professional baseball players like Mike Piazza, and similarly, it's they, they can't hit it. And Ginny Finch has achieved a kind of a unique status for a female athlete even today. Yeah, she was really a breakout star after the 2004 Olympics. Of course, people in Arizona would know her from before that since she won national titles with the U of A team before 2004. You know, it really helped spread the sport of softball to young girls in this country and gave them someone to look up to and emulate. A lot of the girls started wearing the same headbands that she would wear, and a lot of players, I think, got into pitching because of her. There aren't that many books written about women's sports. And I also admit, not being much of a sports fan, I don't read sports books. But I still found it refreshing to read a book about athletes who enjoyed their game and who didn't have scandals every five pages. There seems to be a much more down-to-earth quality, and granted, we're not talking about a major league sport with huge paychecks attached to it, but at the same time, there's still, time and time again in your book, stories of teamwork and respect for the, the team leader. Yeah, I think these were women who led regular lives in, in many respects, but they really cared and, I think, appreciated the opportunities that they had to to play on a team like the Breakettes or the Phoenix Ramblers, which was a big team here in Arizona. 
they appreciated the opportunity to, to play for a competitive team and to represent their towns. So I think it was really important to them. They worked hard and they played hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be nice if maybe there were more opportunities for, for women in sports to get so rich that they behave badly. But <laughs> that we're not at that stage yet. Maybe We someday. can help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Erica Wesley's book, Fast Pitch, The Untold History of Softball and the Women Who Made the Game, has just been published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.